Officers Association of Michigan podcast radio show recorded live in our studios in Redford, Michigan. Home is a full-service labor organization formed to provide every labor-related service from negotiations, grievance processing, legal and legislative representation to Act 312 arbitrations. Hi, this is Ed Jocks on the Michigan Police Information Network. And today, we're going to be talking with POEM's general counsel, Frank Guido, on the uh, application of uh, uh, Public Act 152, Public Act 63, and also Public Act 54. There's been a lot of questions because uh, the law took effect on January 1st, and uh, Frank's going to clarify some issues and uh, POEM's position on on some of these things. Welcome, Frank. Hello, Ed. Frank, uh, Public Act 152 limits the amount that uh, public employers may contribute to the annual cost of medical benefits. The act applies to coverage years beginning on or after January 1st, 2012. Is coverage year the same as plan year? Well, Ed, you know, there's been a lot of uh, debate and discussion about what the statutory language means. I suppose to, to simplify without getting caught up in the uh, labels that are sometimes used differently by legislators, by medical insurance carriers, and by even unions. The best way to, to characterize what Public Act 152 was intended to do is to recognize that when there is a medical insurance plan, and that plan with a particular carrier has a open period that precedes the renewal date of the plan, that it, we are really talking under the statute about that segment of time. For example, many of our groups use a July 1st, October 1st period where a plan with a medical insurance carrier will begin. Prior to that date, there may be a enrollment period of a certain duration, allowing individuals to select that plan or some other plan for enrollment purposes. We can say with some degree of certainty that the intent of the statute was to use that period when the medical insurance plan renews, in essence, as the trigger date for when application of provisions of that law were to go into effect. Now, let me say it a little bit in the converse. We have employers that have simply argued that January 1 is the automatic date that the statute is intended to use as the trigger. That, we can emphatically say, is incorrect. And we filed some unfair labor practices on that, correct? Yes, and I'll get to the litigation aspect, but at least in terms of the statute, the rationale of the employers has been that the January 1st date is the date to use because deductibles and co-pays, things of that nature, may renew at that point in time for an employee. But that circumstance has absolutely nothing to do with when the plan with the carrier begins. That's the segment of time in which the rates, the premiums, are determined, whether right. they have gone you know, up, I'd like to say down, but since that doesn't happen, nope. how much they've gone up. And so the statute, as worded, uh, used language that said for uh, medical benefit plan coverage years beginning on or after January 1, 2012. There would have been absolutely no reason that legislation to have stated or after January 1, 2012. The statute would have simply stated that effective January 1, this is what the employers could do. And the statute wasn't worded that way. And there's some reasons why the language is not worded that way. Employers are obligated under this statute to develop the annual cost or illustrative rate 
associated with the medical insurance coverage. To do that, they need to know what it is the carrier is going to be charging. What the carrier charges is tied into the particular year of coverage underneath the medical insurance plan. So it stands to reason that when the criteria is developed and when the plan and the provisions of the statute are allowed to be put into effect, that it is not associated automatically with the January 1st date, but that it will be dictated by when the medical insurance plan itself and the coverage year is intended to begin. Now, it could be a situation where January 1 happens to be the same date. Sure. And that exists with some of our groups. Yep. February 1 could be the date. A lot of our groups, though, are, are typically on a July 1st or October 1st uh, time period. So with regard to those employers that did go forward and use January 1 as the trigger, we have uh, filed unfair labor practice charges, uh, many, many unfair labor practice charges. I think by count now we're, we're, we're well in excess of 20, 25 charges across the state. And we have also, of course, filed two test case litigation pieces in Genesee County Circuit Court and in Oakland County Circuit Court challenging uh, the actions of the employer and seeking declaratory and injunctive relief uh, with regard to the employer's actions. Now, since the time of filing litigation, we have received not one, not two, but three favorable interpretations mm -hmm of the statute that coincide with our position. Initially, we received from the Blue Cross Blue Shield representative who is designated for our group a confirmation letter indicating that our interpretation was correct. The January 1 is not the automatic date, that it is geared to when the coverage year is to begin. Yeah, so plan year, deductible year, benefit year, all out. It's about coverage year, and we've you're going to tell us a couple other people that have also uh, bolstered the opinion straight from Blue Cross and Blue Shield as well, right. too. Subsequent to the Blue Cross Blue Shield correspondence, we then received a letter from the Attorney General's office, uh, from the, the chief, uh, chief assistant to the Attorney General, and the letter, once again, as an opinion, substantiated the analysis that we have put forward regarding how uh, Act 152 is to be implemented. And it went right down the line in terms of what we have said. And then just to make it even more emphatic, the Department of Treasury issued what they've entitled Public Act 152 of 2011, Publicly Funded Health Insurance Contribution Act, Frequently Asked Questions. And in the body of the answers, they have identified that we, in essence, are correct. Uh, the operative language uh, states, the act applies to coverage years beginning on or after January 1, 2012. The act does not use the term plan year. Although coverage year is not defined in the act, Treasury has interpreted this term to mean the one-year period beginning on the date that newly elected or newly renewed coverage begins for a group of persons under a medical benefit plan. Usually this date is shortly after the annual benefit enrollment period during which employees choose coverage. Therefore, the first coverage year under the Act would be the one-year period beginning on the date on or after January 1, 2012 that new medical insurance coverage begins. Consequently, the, the language is, is identical to what we have been advocating, which looks at these periods of time in which there is enrollment, and then subsequent to enrollment is the time when the new premium, so to speak, and new uh, coverage begin, and that, that, by and large, is often not typically January 1. Right. Now, I want to uh, uh, alert our listeners that um, the uh, questions and answers from the Department of Treasury, the uh, determination from Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and I believe even the letter from uh, the Attorney General's office is on the POAM website for people to review and uh, digest. Now, with that overwhelming evidence, Frank, I know some employers have agreed with our position and retracted from what they have done, but I know some others aren't. Are they waiting for a, a, deci a decision somewhere in the courts? 
Well, you know, it's unfortunate that um, that this would happen with, with some of the, um, the public employers, that they would be taking this position, because it is going to result in their having to uh, reimburse all the employees uh, for the money that has been uh, has been deducted from their compensation. And frankly, I cannot, in light of this overwhelming support for our position, uh, I can't understand why uh, some of these public employers, through uh, the advice of their legal counsel, are persisting in these uh, cases. I am actually hopeful that um, after we have our uh, initial round of uh, filings and responses, uh, which have now come in on litigation, that uh, Prior to getting to even a pretrial setting, uh, we will have the employers um, finally uh, fold on this and uh, do what is right. Uh, one final question on uh, PA uh, 152, Frank. It, does the Act cover uh, plans for dental, uh, vision, or disability insurance? We're getting that question we, a lot. Yeah, we had uh, an answer to that question uh, by the uh, Department of Treasury. And the question posed was, does the Act cover plans for dental and vision insurance? And the answer from Treasury is no. A medical benefit plan is defined under the Act as a plan that provides for the payment of medical benefits, including but not limited to hospital and physician services, prescription drugs, and related benefits. Treasury has interpreted this definition to exclude separate plans for dental or vision insurance. So if uh, uh, an employer is rolling a, a dental and vision into uh uh, the cost of uh, the medical uh, uh, premium, that's a mistake, and uh, our uh, local leader should be on the alert for that. That is correct. Okay. Uh, Public Act 54, Frank, as you well know, mandates that any health care premium increases accrued after a contract expires be passed on to the employees uh, until a new collective bargaining agreement is reached. Um, what is the uh, proper way to calculate the cost of employees under both PA 152 and Public Act 54 if they happen on the same date, which does happen quite often? We've had uh, a number of questions on this uh, very uh, point that you raise. Uh, employers, some are calculating correctly, others are are missing the boat completely. Uh, it has to be recognized first that Act 54, which is a direct amendment to PARA, authorizes an employer, after a collective bargaining agreement expires, and even if the parties are engaged in negotiation for a new agreement, to pass on to employees the full cost of any increase in medical insurance premiums that occur during the period of bargaining. Uh, the concept behind that, uh, as, as ill-thought-out as, as it was and is, is that somehow this would uh, compel unions to negotiate and resolve collective bargaining agreements prior to their expiration and avoid any protracted delays uh, without a contract uh, and presumably utilization of compulsory arbitration as an alternative dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, the opposite effect, as we predicted, of course, is true. Yeah. Uh, employers drag their feet. They have no reason to want to settle when they can pass along any increase in medical insurance uh, premiums to the employees. So it's being used as an unfortunate uh, bargaining tool and tactic uh, by some employers. We have a, a response uh, tactically as well. Uh, in an Act 54 situation and uh, are, are utilizing that uh, as, as we speak in some of our compulsory arbitration cases because of how the statute uh, is worded. And I'll get to that point uh, yep. in, in a minute. But at least in terms of your, your direct question on the calculation, because that law authorizes the passing through of increase, we could have a scenario where a contract expires uh, let's say a contract expires on, on December 31st of a year. And uh, um, on, on February 1st, uh, we have uh, some notification of premium increases um, that can be then, because of Act 54, passed along to employees. The full amount of the Act 54 increase can be passed along, as we've already stated. 
That scenario has to be, however, coordinated with the impact of Act 152, which is not an amendment of the Public Employment Relations Act. It is a standalone statutory provision which recognizes um, that the employer uh, can not pay any more than either certain hard cap numbers that are stated in the statute or 80% of the total uh, cost of medical insurance premiums for not just a particular bargaining unit, but taking all employees collectively. So that's an aggregate number, which means there may be some room for different local collective bargaining units. I don't know if it's playing out that way. It doesn't appear that it is yet. But. You know, in theory there is, and that, that becomes another subordinate kind of question to, to what we're, we're talking about here. But we have, uh, we have a situation then where, for example, let's say an employer has opted for the, what we refer to as the 80-20 format, which is a bit of a misnomer because really the statute says that the employer can pay no more than 80%. It doesn't say employees pay 20%, right. but uh, that the employer can't pay any more than 80%. So let's say we have an employer who has opted for the 80% provision and thereby is a trying to pass along to the employees 20% of the cost of premiums. This is 20% of the cost of, of all the premiums, not just a, a, a snapshot of what the increases may have been over a previous year. This is 20% of all premiums. But if the employer has already, under Act 54, passed along to employees the increase amount, the employer must then, in the calculation, first carve out what is the Act 54 increased amount that's being passed along to employees, and then only charge that much more, which would take them up to, for example, the 20%, 20% level. Right. So we don't have this kind of double dipping that some employers have done, which, which results in them charging 20% of the full amount of premium to employees plus, plus. the increased amount over the previous year. That is simply not correct. Uh, that is uh, not contemplated by the statutes. It would run afoul of fundamental statutory construction provisions of reading the statutes in harmony, and uh, that would certainly not do that. And I want to encourage our uh, local association leaders, if they uh, feel that's happening, A, to investigate it and make sure that it's happening. But if you do find out that that's happening, you know, immediately contact your POEM business agent and move the process along. With regard to Act 54 and the fact that the employer can pass along the increase in medical insurance premiums, we have argued and, and will argue in ensuing compulsory arbitration cases that the provision in the Compulsory Arbitration Act dealing with retroactivity controls in this situation such that we can request of an arbitrator that we be made whole on a retroactive basis for any premiums that we were charged under the Act 54 scenario. Of course, whether the arbitrator grants it or not is a different story, but right. we do have <clears throat> some mechanism tactically, strategically to seek reimbursement, in essence, for the Act 54 uh, increases that are passed along. And the reason for this argument is the statute very specifically says that an arbitrator, an arbitration panel, can grant retroactive benefits and wages to any period of time in dispute, notwithstanding any other statute. And it's that last phrase that indicates that this provision that exists in the law can still trump the scenario where the employer has passed through Act 54 uh, increased cost of premiums. Uh, we do not have any court decision on that yet, but we are confident that the strength of the statute will, will carry the day principally because of the wording itself, but also the fact that the Act 312 statute, as we all know, was also amended um, during the course of all of these uh, bills becoming law and in the course of its amendments, which occurred actually after Act 54 was passed, there was no tampering with, changing, amending, modifying 
that provision dealing with retroactivity. And so, therefore, we believe it is still viable. Right. And so I just want to maybe uh, touch on that again. I mean, it, it, it's your position, Frank, that because uh, when 312 was amended that it was after Public Act 54, that, that's significant. I, we believe it is, is, from a statutory construction standpoint, that's a significant occurrence that uh, allows us to uh, still utilize that provision. Frank, let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, just for a second, about Public Act 63. It's part of an appropriations bill that includes a cap on pension multipliers and final average compensation. It's part of a whole dashboard of uh, information that um, uh, municipalities must produce. Um, does this constitute an amendment to the Public Employees Relation Act, PARA, uh, and does it impact employees cover, uh, covered already by our collective bargaining agreement? Well, we've not had any test case yet on what Act 63 uh, will do in terms of uh, PARA-based rights, but understand that Act 63 is just part of the big appropriations bill that is done uh, in the legislature, and it is for the uh, the budget year of 2011-2012. And in in the substance of that bill, there is no reference whatsoever to it constituting an amendment to PARA, unlike, ex for example, what Act 54 Four. was done, yeah. uh, but, again, similar to what Act 152 did, that neither, neither law states to be an amendment to PARA nor a limitation on PARA. So we have uh, certainly some arguments that would indicate that the provisions in Act 63, in the Appropriations Bill, that generally cover pension and medical insurance caps are not applicable to uh, public employees that are within collective bargaining units and that we would at a minimum have ongoing para-based rights to negotiate in those areas before any employer could make unilateral change. And understand that, that the premise of what I am stating in terms of these para-based rights is grounded in a Supreme Court decision from many years ago which stated that para-based rights are supreme as against other conflicting legislation, charters, ordinances, things of that nature. Consequently, to the extent this law, Act 63, similar to Act 152, would be viewed as in conflict with general bargaining rights, those laws must be deemed subordinate to the para-based rights. So any attempt by an employer to unilaterally impose any of the provisions on existing employees under Act 63, we would certainly be uh, in a position to raise a challenge to those actions. Right now, Frank, a uh, uh, final piece of legislation that we'll talk about. It's not legislation yet, but it's in committee, and it's House Bill 4059. That would eliminate local union officers from representing members while on duty, in, in, as you know, Frank, even in the case of a critical incident. It also bans any uh, release time to negotiate a contract or discuss possible grievances or other issues with the employer. How will this type of legislation, if passed, uh, impact POAM and our local associations? Well, it will, it will certainly have an impact. Uh, first and foremost is the fact that this legislation cannot be considered anything other than an anti-animus-type scenario. Uh, the legislature is, is trying to regulate in an area with no real logic as to why they feel there's a necessity that, that satisfies public health, safety, and welfare in terms of doing this. Um, the very thin argument that, well, taxpayer dollars are, are being wasted because these individuals um, are being released while being compensated uh, to uh, undertake uh, union functions really misses the point. And if cost were the determining factor, the reality is that a passage of this kind of law will result in far greater costs uh, to the public, because what will happen very simply is that unions uh, operate through their locals, and the locals designate their representatives, and if those representatives uh, are not allowed to meet with the employer 
uh, on labor-related matters, whether it be a negotiation issue, it be a grievance adjustment issue, if it be representation of a member, then those functions are going to have to take place at non during non-work hours. And that's going to require the employer hmm. to bring in personnel to uh, deal with issues that are labor-related that's going to drive up their costs, be it overtime costs, be it uh, other related uh, use of facilities costs, uh, that certainly doesn't substantiate or assist in the uh, alleged public purpose of a release time provision. Uh, I, I think the biggest, the biggest concern will be that if we don't have these individuals capable and able to uh, do things during their workday, that we're not going to be able to function unless it's during those off-duty hours. And you're going to have public employers going nuts because they don't want to meet. Yeah, They I, don't want to do those things. That's, no, they don't want to meet totally, after dinner that's totally contrary um, at 8 to what o'clock they want to, uh, to, talk, to negotiate a contract or discuss any other issues. And, and I can assure you that if we're put in that scenario, that's what we're going to be demanding the employer do. And if they don't uh, acquiesce to that obvious necessity – uh, we will certainly be filing appropriate charges for failing to bargain in good faith. Yeah, and, and, and let me add, I mean, the other, the other, the other real element here that, that is problematic is going to be in those matters of investigatory nature that, that when the employer wants information from employees, they're not going to be able to get it if there's no representative available at that time. Uh, the information will only be able to flow to the employer Again, during an off-duty uh, time period, and that may be totally contrary to the employer's need to know. It generally is. They always want to know right away what what happened, and what, and especially in the event of a critical incident. And we we have always operated on a fundamental premise, even when we have asserted uh, and been you know a strong advocate of Garrity rights that uh, this is uh, an attempt to have a level playing field. The employer wants information; we want certain protections. Well, the employer is not going to get the information they want uh, if something like this release time prohibition uh, goes into effect because it's going to have to happen at a later point. It, administrated, uh, administrative officials that I've talked to, uh, almost all of them, uh, agree with our position on that, and they, they don't like the legislation. They understand that it's bad legislation. In fact, the uh, Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police have uh, supported our uh, position that it is bad legislation and have gone on record of asking, uh, you know, that it that there be an exemption, certainly at least for law enforcement officers. And well over half of the sheriffs in the state uh, disagree with the legislation as well. So they realize those same things. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, that either stays in committee or comes out with an exemption for law enforcement officers. I want to remind our audience that um, there is a letter that can be, with three clicks of the mouse, be sent to all uh, 138 legislators uh, sort of outlining uh, POEM and law enforcement's opinion on House Bill 4059. So I encourage you to go ahead and do that because it has not been enacted yet. And I also encourage our members to get more information about uh, Public Act 152, 63, and 54. All of that information is on the POEM website. Frank, thanks uh, ever so much for all the work that you do representing our members and taking the time to join us today for the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the POAM podcast radio show. I want to remind you that each and every month you can find every single podcast online on Apple iTunes. Just search for POAM. They're also available for download or for live listen on our website. Visit us at POAM.net. Get on our newsletter and send us all of your comments and suggestions for future shows. Yes.